0: say it loud network presents corner table talk well welcome everyone to uh, corner table talk today my esteemed guest is an old friend of mine and uh, a reasonably recognizable name and face these days none other than chef marcus samuelson Marcus is uh, best known recently for uh, the the Red Rooster. But Marcus uh, owns and operates restaurants around the world. He's just an incredible dynamic speaker, entrepreneur, operator, chef. And uh, he also happens to be husband to the very lovely Maya and proud papa to his son, Zion. So chef, Welcome to Corner Table Talk. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Brad. I'm, I'm really excited about this. And uh, yeah, you know, let's chop it up.
0: So I get started, Marcus, with a little, you'll, you'll appreciate this, a little restaurant terminology. I call it the short order questions. Yeah. So I'm going to fire a few at you. That shouldn't be uh, too difficult for you to uh, elaborate a little bit on, but just to give us a little flavor and get rolling. So first one, what is in heavy rotation on your playlist these days
1: oh you know i would like to say i'm hipper than that but i'm still listening to prince and bob and marvin and Aretha the most but then i got a little bit like i said i got it like played up a little bit i got to change up some i was listening to i heard about this new band earth gang that's from atlanta People have been calling them the new outcast. Oh, wow. Whenever we want to say they're the new outcast, I've heard that term so many times. I'm like, there can never be another outcast. <laughs> but these guys are doing talented, so I am listening to a little bit of that. And also a lot of Afrobeats, you know, mm-hmm. like you know, what Fela started and looking at the next generation, what the kids are doing today, where it's really blended all African sounds with hip-hop. And, and reggaeton and all of that. So I'm all I'm all over with music. But music is on 24/7. When I go to run, when I think about food, when I think my son out, music is everywhere for me.
0: Isn't it the greatest accompaniment, man? I you know mm. I I don't know what I would do without without music in my life. And by the way, I'm loving Angelique Pigeaux. Uh mm-hmm. She's someone I discovered a few years ago and just absolutely love her. And also Miriam Makeba has been like coming back to me in, in heavy rotation. So. Yeah, those those couple. All right. So I know you're you're a very fashionable, uh, dapper gentleman. What is your desired footwear these days?
1: You know, my buddy just sent me these pair of vans that, you know, these skater shoes. So, uh, and I was just, you know how it is when you have a friend doing something, realizing the, your, their vision. Like I remember when you were telling me about this podcast, and now you're doing it. And my friend, Chris. He was doing this project together with Vans. So now he's doing it, right? So for me, I I think about, I take so much joy when my creative friends can realize their vision. So when Chris sent me his pair of Vans, I was like, I'm all in. I'm rocking them. Chris is part of this, you know.
0: I love that. Are they
1: comfortable? Yeah, yeah. No, not only do they look good, of course, but they're comfortable. And it's interesting you say that about fashion. Yeah, I I don't know nothing about fashion. No, but honestly, like. People say that fashion, I was like, absolutely not. Uh, I love style. And it's a Mm -hmm. different thing. I think as as blackness, as, you know, being connected to the continent, style is everywhere. Right. And the style that you could draw from the continent is very often, with very little, we can do much, right? Whether it's colors, whether our fabrics. And, you know, it's also the tradition of, as black men, we have to dress a certain way. Mm -hmm. Because if we wear a hoodie, we have enough examples of what happened. But I always think about that. I teach my son, we always have to look dapper and he's just five, and, you know, but it does have an undertone of reality
0: too. No question. And, and I appreciate the distinction between fashion and style. Fashion suggests something that's temporary, that's dictated by someone else or trend. Yeah. Style is like, what are you comfortable rolling in, right?
1: And our uncles, you know, you're like my uncles, yeah, you know, I always call them uncles, but they're not really uncles. But like, the people that I adored coming up, right, they were so st- stylish. You know, like Bob, you know, he wasn't fashionable, but he was stylish. Yeah. You know, Phil Akutti had style, although he never had a shirt on. Here, <laughs> Marvin had crazy style. And Miles had style. So all these icons, prints, you know, Sly and the Family Stone, all of them for me are like, and it goes back to that time where we grew up with albums. Right. The album was a whole event it was you know it's not like now when you download so you miss some of that aesthetic right the font of an album the right. backside of an album pulling it out so all of that for me connects that,
0: you know yeah man yeah I, I love that marcus thank you all right um where do you and maya go for a romantic dinner
1: you know my favorite place is when we can go to jamaica and eat on the beach mm. you know and there's nothing like Ja. You know, I think as Africans, I think Ja, Jamaica speaks to us in a different way, right? It's, it's far to, to fly to Africa, but Jamaica is just a couple of hours away. And once you land, there's, there's something about the connectivity there with that island that I feel I feel like I'm home. Mm-hmm. And sitting on the beach in the grill and just eating a simple jerk, something, or eating in the morning, having breakfast, and it can be ackee and salt. It's a very basic thing. And it's just that I love that. There's no, I just love that.
0: Yeah, man, I feel you on that one. So is there a time of day that you feel you have most access to your creative energy? I know you're a busy guy. You go 24-7, but you always seem to be very present, too, in the moment. But is is there an energy time for you that you call on? Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I would say really mornings, you know, my son gets us up. Sometimes too early, but early. And once he's good and, and sort of in his way, whether it's getting ready of school, there is always that plot where I can actually start thinking about it. And, and uh, it always goes back to food to me, mm-hmm. you know, always. And then the people, but it's food, food comes first, you know. And, right. I, and I, I'm still in awe in love with these things that salt, sweet, sour, bitter, heat, umame. These six things has i have been chasing flavors all my life and still doing it. And at man. our age, the fact that you can do something that you're passionate about and still be passionate about it, mm-hmm. it's a privilege. You know?
0: It sure is, man. It sure is. All right. So last one, Marcus, and this may be the, the toughest one. What is your favorite walk in New York City?
1: My favorite walk?
0: Walk. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, that is not a tough one. It is uh, around Central Park. Uh, and it's linked back to sharing it with my son, but also when I came to New York. You know how it is. We all done it. You come to New York, you have no money. When I say no money, no money. So you go to a place like Central Park where you can be part of the Saturday roller skater or rollerbladers, or you can be part of a jazz concert because somebody's performing, or you can see uh, hip-hop breakdancers, and you are getting this incredible postcard of New York City for free right and eventually as you have a little money you start of course tipping and being mm-hmm. participating but specifically those early years when you don't have a dime but you're happy you have four roommates and you're happy and five roommates or whatever it is mm-hmm. but you go to central park and the city is for you there will yeah. always be that
0: the and parts, it's free right and it's free yeah yeah yeah, yeah i love that man all right. So diving in here a little bit, and again, man, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I can't imagine what your schedule is like these days, and um, you know, it, it's. I really appreciate you uh, you joining us here, and congratulations on the rise. It's it's a, the the cookbook that Marcus just put out. It's just so much more than a cookbook. It's really a culinary roadmap that uh, has been long overdue, and so many folks acknowledge. And it's it's really a beautiful, beautiful piece of work, Marcus. So we'll we'll talk. Talk about that in a few, but I, I want to check in first. H- how's your family doing? It's been a been an interesting yeah. year. <laughs> how's everybody?
1: You know, we're blessed, and it's been tough, like for everybody. But and I would I would probably answer it by compartmentalizing those first three months there, from March to July. It was a shock to the system, mm. and the amount of fear for getting the virus. Can I work? How do we provide? All of that was just mixed up. I was nervous about this. Then once I was really inspired by the social justice conversation that America was having over the summer. It's just horrible. They had to go through these horrible, painful, horrible incidents, right? Whether it was Breonna Taylor or George Floyd. But one sort of late summer, early fall kicked in. We have now systemized that. It's incredible how as human beings, how quickly we adapt. And now this is the new normal. And now we're coming back out of it. We're still not out of it. But uh, yeah, Brad, we, we, we lost a lot in terms of restaurants, but that could, we can build that back. And Maya and Zion and I we stayed healthy and that's when you realize your privilege. We have access to healthcare. And um, just walking those five minutes between my house and Red Rooster, you see America. You see the haves and you don't the don'ts have. That really inspired me to know what we had to do. We had to start serving our community, and that's what we did. We've served over 250,000 meals with World Central Kitchen since we started.
0: Yeah, I've read about that, Marcus, and that, that's just phenomenal, man. But that's thats what you do, sir. You know, I, I read somewhere that the restaurant industry was estimated to lose about $240 billion in, in sales and that your your group, Large and I think your sales were estimated at somewhere around 75 million and, and, and might have experienced as much as an 80% drop, um, due to COVID. That, that's a lot of revenue to lose, but that's a lot of business. You were doing 4,000 meals a week at Red Rooster. I mean, that, that's just incredible. So, um, and you say, Marcus, I've, I've also read where you think that it's going to take, you know, five to six years to build back in our industry from where, what we lost. That, that's quite an uphill climb. Um, question, how many how many people did you employ pre-pandemic across all of your restaurants, would you estimate?
1: Yeah, I mean, so most of those restaurants are in partnership and so on. So direct employees of the group is not that big, but people that work with me and with the restaurants that we've built up were between uh, 15 to 1700, you know, in eight different countries. You know, it's not you can't look at this as what we have lost mm-hmm. because we have the privilege of being healthy and we have the privilege of being able to navigate through this. And he's talking to somebody that came to this country with $300. And I was equally happy when I had $300 or nothing in my pocket. So this is the big reset and we all had to get a haircut and take a (laughs) dip. So if this is what happened to us, okay, but we're going to be okay. And we will rebuild. Uh, And, uh, I have the privilege to rebuilding something that I'm still in love with mm-hmm. is hospitality serving people, putting people together. So, you know, I you know, I feel like my blessings as a black man is that I share as black people. We gone through many pandemics. My blessing as an immigrant is that I come from a very simple background and I don't need a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm inspired to move forward. You know, I can't. I cannot look back on what we lost. It's not healthy
0: for me. Right. Well, you you kind of answered a, a bit of my next question, but I, I'll I'll frame it in this way and and ask it anyway. With with so many people under your employ and and looking to you for leadership, how have you managed to communicate that message or or the message that you'd like to w- across the board? And and how have you you know kind of rallied your troops?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's. I remember those first months, you know, on a personal level, I just wanted to throw my phone away because every phone call was a negative phone call, right? And Brad, it took me 25 years to build and 10 days to break down the whole thing. And that also forced you to ask yourself questions, like how could you build something that took so much hard work to build up collectively, not just me, the whole group. And with that, the pandemic just broke it down. Like... uh, tornado in just 10 days, ripped through it. So as we're coming out of this slowly, I'm going to build this a little bit different, right? And I've learned a lot. So I don't know what the future holds, but I do know that we're going to build it a little bit different. we all done it, right? We are social distance, but we're still social. We've been able to do cooking classes online the way we never done them before. So there's new ways to work as a chef. And uh, being fortunate to have a brand, and being fortunate to have a restaurant here in Miami, where I'm right now in Overtown, you just just a privilege to be able to work and, and communicate with food. It's a blessing. Now it was rough, you know. The Swedish team, they have a different system, so I knew the people that we followed there have a government structure that was in place. And remember what happened a year ago, right? We had to build the system at the same time as we had a very confusing me- me- message coming out of our government, right? right. So in Sweet- in, at least in Sweden, I knew my employees, they would get 70% of their salary based on the tax system and all based on the way Swedish- Sweden is governed. That's not fantastic, but at least I know they're going to be okay. We have places in London and in Canada as well, similar. Again, it was only really America where we are a modern country, but we have very little safety measures, right? right? And it's hard, Brad, as you know, to build something at the same time as you need it. That's why most modern countries have built this security system since the Second World War, right? So they're 50 years ahead of us when it comes to healthcare, we came mm-hmm. to a safer system for their citizens. And, uh, We are now building that up. It's not perfect, but imagine if we'd have 55, 70 years to build on it, versus you know when obama started it in right. 2012
0: it's a work in progress and i and i want to come back marcus to the because i know that you just opened in overton and i and i obviously operate in new york and i want to get your take cuz i've watched los angeles closely and different states have reacted differently you're right there was no national plan so everybody was kind of left to fend for themselves and it's been a bit schizophrenic which has made it even harder for operators to respond to but before i do that um, I'm just curious for you personally, and I, I think I kind of know the answer, but h- how do you keep your spirits up with so many people looking to you for leadership and guidance and the uplift? What what fortifies you?
1: Well, I think there's two sides to that. There's the true personal side where my family, with my son, my wife, and I get tired like everybody else and I get down like everybody else. Once I leave the house, it's all forward because it's like you have to, because the dishwasher, the cooks, the bartenders, the barbats, the managers, they joined us. Yeah. And, you know, when you own a restaurant, it's its like a tribe. Everyone in that tribe, the night cleaner, the... the All the energy the is
0: connected. We yes. all feed off of each other.
1: Yes. They feed off each other. And the person that sells you the strawberries to the salmon, whatever it might be, they we're all in this together. So... When they can't trade with you anymore and when they can't trust that they have this place anymore, you feel like believe it like you let everybody down. And the pandemic wasn't our fault, but still end of the day, it creates this crack. And so I felt trust. They trusted me and I couldn't deliver on that. And on a personal level, that was very, very hard. But again, there's no point of dwelling on it too much because my and I, we're fortunate enough to be, you know, we're financially going to be able to navigate through this, and we have access to healthcare. So I was just thinking about the people that had a tougher. So that's really where the. My father was a tribe leader in Ethiopia, and I looked at him a lot. You know, he's not with us anymore, but. Watched him. How did he navigate through getting water into a village that didn't have access to water? Uh, my Swedish dad, he was the first person to go to university in his, in his village. He come from a fishing village. I remember as a child watching adult men and women coming into the house. My father had to read paperwork for them, sign for them. I watched leadership within my own family from a very, very different point of view. And I'm fortunate enough to have those experiences to draw from.
0: It, it all fortifies you, Marcus. You know, as you're speaking about that, I, I take myself back to, you know, nights in various restaurants over the years where business did not come through the door. And I sat there where I would normally have dinner and my stomach was too upset to eat. And I felt the staff, you know, moving in slow motion and people looking at me like, man, is this place going to make it? And it's it, it. I think what you're talking about, we draw strength from those experiences that, that fortify us in times when we have to call on that reserve. And, of course, you talk about your, your dad and, 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 you know, our ancestors and the struggles that they had. When we look at that in the context of what we have to deal with, I, I think that we get a little wind in our sails and we're able to keep pushing. Mm-hmm. Would you agree?
1: Absolutely. And uh, we've all gone through that. You know, as chefs and restaurateurs, you learn more from the restaurant that you close than the restaurants you open. And that pain that you're talking about, it's real, right? We've all gone through that. Because when you open a restaurant, the excitement of the possibilities, then when they are not matched for whatever reason, the location, you couldn't execute, somebody felt sick, somebody who was supposed to work with and not work with, the, the 50 different reasons of the why, right? And it's painful. And we've all had those, you know. I've definitely had my share. And. You have to go through that so when people always say, Oh, the Red Rooster is so busy. I'm like it's a journey, man. I had to close no a lot of places before I didn't
0: get to <laughs> yeah. that. You have no idea, right? So Marcus, let's let's turn back to the subject of and, and I don't mean to get into a, a political discussion. we we'll, let's we can separate our observations about the way that different states handled the pandemic and the opening and closings and what have you. I've been spending time in Florida as a result, and by the way, have driven past, haven't had dinner yet at Red Rooster, but it looks amazing, and I've heard people say it's just an absolutely gorgeous room. I'm not surprised, and I know you've got a little ice cream business that I, I also hope to uh, to patronize there. But you know, I'm still in touch with John Cleveland. We sold the restaurant to um, to our chef in L.A., and we were mentoring him. So I'm. I've been very close to the openings and closings and what that has meant for operators trying to navigate that process. In L.A., you bring staff back, you let staff go, you put up a tent. Now you can't pay the cost. You've got to end inventory. Now you don't have business. It's just been like, you know, a yo-yo. Yet I was in South Beach a few months ago. My son came to visit and people were out. Prime 112 was busy. Everybody wore masks and there was, you know, reasonable social distancing. And I'm not saying there's no risk in that. But when you look at the devastation to businesses that was caused and we'll stick with our industry to restaurants that was caused by the by the states trying to figure out and navigate their way. How do you how do you see that? You operate a restaurant in, in Miami now, and I think you were able to open your doors sooner there than, than perhaps you were able to have indoor dining in New York. How do you how do you view that, Marcus?
1: I, you know, I I would say that, first of all, the pandemic horrible and really pulls the curtain on you know how it impacts black communities and Latin communities and the despair. You know, you know, Brad, 41% of all black businesses due to COVID, 41%. Hmm. And those are majority of those are mom and pop. You know, stores with less than 10 employees where these were stores where people, they sent their kids to college. They, they created a middle-class living out of these mom and pop stores. 41% of them are closed. And as you know, we don't have access to generational wealth. We don't really have access to institutional, traditional money as well. So where, how and when is that going to come back? What's going to happen to our communities? Yes, we're rolling out the vaccine now, but how that will impact our community. Ah, So that's why I say it will take 10 years for us to fully come back to December of 2019, right? In terms of opening, you know, we opened Red Rooster, we closed, we opened, we closed. It was this uncertainty of back and forth, but I am proudly to say on December 15th, we opened the doors here in Overtown. And obviously, The weather has a huge impact, right? The fact that we have 75 degrees in the the evening even. And the key part here is that Red Rooster Overtown, we built a patio before the pandemic. That has 90 seats. So our dining room, people are not really, I would say if we do 150, 200 covers, that's over 90 seats in the patio. So we seat that only a time and a half and we start serving much earlier, for example, Right. right? So we have to do similar, to to get to the numbers we want needed to get to stay open, we just have to tweak our business a little bit. And our dining room that we spend so much on, and have this incredible, beautiful art, is a place where people walk through and are part of, and sometimes some people want to sit inside, but they sit far apart from each other. So without that patio, we could not be open, right? The business that we don't have is actually where I'm doing this recording, is our upstairs, is the... That group business that is so vital to business, the restaurants that the corporate business so when is that coming back i don't know it's no point of even guessing but i'm fortunate and blessed to have a core business we have about 90 employees here now in overtown and be able to create jobs in the middle of the pandemic is one of the proudest things i've ever been part of and I need we all feeding of positive environments by right? And we need this was right for us. It might not be right for somebody else. It might the right decision would have been maybe to stay close and wait it out. Us being in this climate, knowing that we wear a mask, knowing that we have the patio, this was the right decision for us after many trials and errors.
0: Now I, I know that the the process of getting that property uh, where Red Rooster is in Overtown was was quite a lengthy process and you know, the, the community and and things had to develop for the the time to be right for you to open there. And just as fate would have it, as you had completed hiring and the anticipation was like through the roof for this place, the pandemic hit. And I remember reading the feeling of having to tell all the young, enthusiastic folks who were so excited about this place, we're not going to be able to open. And how was that experience for you man what did that feel like and now that you've come back um, have you been able to bring a lot of those folks back
1: yeah i mean i mean one of the saddest days was when we have to follow people but you know brad also the way we hire we hire people that very often come back we hire people from all aspects of society mm-hmm. and the toughest was say there was no jobs for people that live in shelters that live that are food insecure right because for them it wasn't just another restaurant opening for them was the only job that they had access right and i couldn't wait to hire the crew team back but a lot of them were gone we couldn't find them uh and that's what it looks like in our communities right that maybe everybody doesn't have a traditional they just you know some don't have traditional ids but you know we were Red Rooster was also part of them to coming back and getting a chance to get a job and eventually be part of something. It wasn't tough for me or that 24-year-old healthy kid that could go and work somewhere else, right? He or she, they would be all right because there's always somewhere we can work in the industry. But a lot of our staff has a different journey. And I take a lot of pride in hiring people from all aspects. And that was painful because I knew those choices that they had were were tough. but. We we are, I'm proud of the family that we have here now. We're 90 people deep, open seven days a week, dinner only, and br- with two really busy brunches, Saturday and Sunday. And uh, we're we just humbly chipping at it, just work, working away.
0: Go ahead, man. Well, you know, Marcus, what you're doing really is, is you're, you're kind of uh, symbolic of your own version of restorative justice. And by that, I mean, when you look at um, the community of Overton and you Overtown, and you know the history of the highway that basically was built through the center of this at one time vibrant Black community, dividing it, and then economic hardships, which you know also plagued South Los Angeles and and Harlem and drugs, and whether or not it was a conspiratorial genocide, because I know growing up in New York. Um, The the drug trade along 8th Avenue, which is Central Park West North, (laughs) basically, um, was was vibrant. And it was a block away from the police precinct. You could drive down Mm -hmm. 123rd Street and buy whatever you want without getting out of your car. You can't tell me that, you know, the police weren't aware of that as, as well. But, you know, it was allowed to happen anyway. So when you take on a project like Red Rooster, as you did in Harlem after um, Bill Clinton had opened up an office building and I, and I remember reading around the time that he then took an office subsequent to that in the financial district, how a lot of people were disappointed that, um, he wasn't more helpful to, to business uptown. It was really Red Rooster in Harlem where you captured the, this, the most beautiful moment with the absolute Right restaurant, you as the, the trained, talented, charismatic spokesperson that rode that wave. And I see the same thing in Overtown that here's another black community that was left behind, right? So the restorative justice part to me is you riding in and putting this beautiful place on the map for the community, hiring the community. How does that feel, man? And, and you were new to these shores. I mean, you didn't grow up here. But that's been the role that you are playing now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I see part of that story very, very... Having lived that story, I see that a little bit different. I would say that, first of all, Black culture, when you grew up as a Black person in the diaspora, and you think about America, you think about Black excellence, you think about Harlem, right? Mm-hmm. So... A game-changing moment in my life was when my father gave me Alex Haley Malcolm X, right? So you start to, I was a teenager, and you start seeing yourself in a completely different light. You start to become different between being a young boy to a man, right? And walking the streets, and now eventually I knew that I would live in Harlem. Maybe not at that moment, but I moved to Harlem in 2002, and the community constantly asked me, how come you don't open the restaurant that I'm not ready? And I remember when my dad took his PhD in geology, it took him eight years. It took me eight years between 2002, living in Harlem, 2010, opening Red Rooster. And it wasn't that I wasn't ready to cook. I just didn't know enough of what I needed to know. So I wanted to study. I need to speak to Thelma Golden about the art. I knew we would have black art, but I need to know the journey. I need to speak to David Smith about What was what? I need to learn from the Wood Bay and Gordon Parks and what should the photography look like. I need to understand that the best cornbread in our culture is not always in restaurant. It can be in after church programs. I have to go to that church. I need to understand which gospel choir. We have two gospel bands at Red Brewster. And you don't know that by emailing someone to that. You have to experience that. Right. So everything you see on the walls and all the things that you hear and everything you read on the menu, it was all learned on that journey. And now it's, it's the team's job to really upload that and broadcast that and execute on that in the best way possible. But, you know, so it's, it was an eight year walk before we even had opened the doors. Same thing here in Overtown. This couldn't have happened without a lot of people coming together. The city of Miami, the city of, you know, the Overtown CRA, the Simpkins family. This was a four-year walk. So, yeah, we had a horrible year that happened, the year that we were supposed to open, but it's not going to define us, right? And I drew from, I got inspired from the civil rights movement, right? When you think about people walked, the bus strikes, for example. That didn't happen for three months, four months, six months. It's a long, 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 long time. So everything that is great has taken much, much, much longer time than you think, and you know that. But when the customer sees it sometimes just what's ready I don't mind it taking four years because everything with meaning takes a long time
0: um I want to come back to something that you said because I want to ask you um, to clarify because I can see where a statement might be misconstrued from what you intend to what the message is that's conveyed and you know as and I'll and I'll personalize that as a person who grew up in the restaurant business. My dad had a place for close to 20 years, starting in the early seventies. And the Upper West Side became a haven uh, for black nightlife when Harlem was, you know, had fallen out of favor and drugs. And it was just not a, you know, not a great place to open business. The Upper West Side for a period of, you know, 15 to 20 years had four to five black owned restaurant, uh, bar, Nightlife, yeah. live venue. I mean, it was a vibrant, crazy, cool scene that didn't get a lot of documentation, you know, in mainstream media. Certainly, Audrey Bernard at, at Amsterdam News wrote about it, and Jet Magazine, but the New York Times, New York Mag. You know, the New York publications and national publications were not paying attention to black culinary during that period. And you talk about that a bit, and I'll, I'll get into that. But when you say that uh the best cornbread might be found in the church. You're talking about places like Sylvia's that were uptown already or places like Jezebel that were downtown and doing some pretty damn good yes. cornbread. So why does Marcus Samuelson think that he would need to find the best cornbread in church?
1: Yeah, and that's, that's a, I, I love that. And, you know, the best for me, right, because the one thing I knew I couldn't do was to try to do the bread, cornbread that was Sylvia was doing. Because that was theirs. You know, I've I've been a customer of Sylvia since they're my neighbors now, and they've been amazing neighbors. And I've been a fan of Alberta Wright and Jezebel's. Mm -hmm. You know, as a matter of fact, I used to live across the street, and she was always kind enough to invite me to that bar because she knew I couldn't afford to sit in the dining room, but sit Mm -hmm. over here, boy, and you would be okay, and watch the action, Watch, watch me go to work. And I did watch. But so my point is, If you look at Red Rooster's menu, it's all through the lens of blackness, but it's also telling a lens of an immigrant story. So my journey is not the journey of the migration, the black. And that's the beauty of our culture that we you can be Caribbean black, you can be uh, coming from the south up north, and the story of the menu really tells both stories. So for us, it was I felt rather than do what these other iconic, the Pampans, the Sylvia's, the amazing restaurant that was been established for 70 years in Harlem. We can't do that. We have to tell our own story. And that's why I was looking very often, the best chicken for me was very often a jerk chicken that was served in the park, for example. So to me, it was finding the familiar, going to places like Lundell's, going to places like Pampan, but the what twist, what story are we trying to tell? Because mm-hmm. it's all about being unique, right? We're not selling generic food. We're selling unique food that is a blend between some, there's a comfort zone there so people can understand what they're coming for and what they're going to get. But then the twist's got to happen, the up's got to happen. And if you don't have a twist, you have nothing to say.
0: Mm-hmm. Good point. So let, let's go back to Jezebel for a minute and Alberta Right? Jezebel was a legendary restaurant that a dear friend of ours, Alberta Wright, opened in the theater district in 1983 in Manhattan. And Marcus, you recently reached out to me about a project that uh, you were working on with Alberta. And you asked me to uh, to work on that with you. And I'm really excited and and looking forward to to working with you on that. Alberta was like a second mom to me. Um, But my question how did you how did you discover Jezebel and and what was your reaction the first time that you walked into that magical room in the middle of the chaos along Ninth Avenue?
1: So, I mean, like most New Yorkers coming up, I lived all over New York, right? But where I felt home was in a very chaotic block, but it wasn't chaotic to me. It was in Hell's Kitchen, and I lived used to live I lived for four years, five years across the street from Jezebel, and. You know, so every morning when I went to work, I walked by it. And, you know, the restaurant was slowly opening up, taking its garbage out or, you know, getting its food. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And the morning, most mornings, Alberta was there telling everybody what to do, being very assertive.
0: (laughs) Uh, She could be assertive.
1: Oh, no, she was assertive. (laughs) And there was no doubt who was the boss. And she's like, what do you want? And then, uh, But she was always... was always a really good conversation she knew what i was doing and she on certain days mostly she mostly came for lunch used to bring one of those high class friends that she knew and she came for lunch and so she was always she knew what i was doing i didn't know if she liked it or not i had no idea but But, so she came to Aquavie, and she always had Incredible, ec- eclectic friends, right? Whether mm-hmm. they were fashion designers or mm-hmm. musicians.
0: or and she could dress.
1: And she could dress, right? So when I came back at nighttime, you know, when I wanted to have my nightcap with my buddies, you know, we could never really afford to sit in the dining room. It was like, you know, Denzel was, could be in the dining room. Wesley Snipes could be in the dining room. Or Whitney could be in the dining room. Whatever. It was not. It was just not for us. And but the bar was for us, Mm -hmm. and her son came out, and it was this magical place which also was very foreign to me, but I felt comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. And the comfort was a couple of things, right? So, Red Rooster is a combination of a love letter, what I saw at Jessica's, what I saw at Dark Bar, what I saw at Sugar, what I saw at an experience at, later on, came Mecca, where I saw it be Smith. And the list goes on and on and on and on, right? And it was this idea that black people were not one or two at the table somewhere in the dining room. It was majority. And then other people could come too. And that feeling that the server were black and so was the bartender, but so was also the majority of people in the room. And that comfortness of that was something that really inspired me. And you know, I watched B do that, B would be Smith could work a room better than anybody. Alberta had a different style. You know, the energy walking into Shark Bar, small, tight, you know, and maybe Oakley comes into the room or, you know, whatever. Yeah, and so yeah. it was a comfort zone of these credible establishments of black restaurant that was really, you know, ten years before that was really started, uh, 15 years before that by your dad, you know, a cello and all of that stuff. So so there is, there is a legacy and a baton that's being passed. And Rooster wouldn't be Rooster without Lennox Lounge, without Showman, without Lundells, without Silvius. And it's all of that that I, what the Rise and the Red Rooster cookbook is. It's really a love letter to that.
0: Yeah. No, I, I feel you, man. You know, and I, you bring up Shark Bar. I know we both know Michael Van and I, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I have the same warm spot as you do and a tribute. I mean, it's important to recognize those places as, you know, it's part of the tapestry, right? That we draw from as we move forward. You know, when we initially, when Denzel and I were, were looking to do a, a Southern restaurant, a soul food restaurant in LA, we wanted to bring Alberta out and do Jezebel. And uh, so Georgia, what we ended up doing was initially intended to be Jezebel. And, and that didn't happen. But that's the story maybe for the project.
1: Board. No, but, but I'll, yeah. tell, I'll tell you about that. So Georgia, you know, so I went there when I came out. Right. And that was so ambitious. So that was important for me because it was important to say, OK, mm-hmm. there's another pinache, there's another way to do that. And there was actors in the room and there was it was this. Language almost that was different, right? And as a young kid coming up, I needed to see that. Just it was just as important for me as to go to a three-star Michelin restaurant when I went to France.
0: Right.
1: So I knew always that I would do Redwood. Uh, I just needed to go to work at it and study it. And that's the eight years. And I felt at that point, okay, I have now done enough personal work. I've now studied. And you know, when you do a restaurant. It, such as Rooster does two floors and 250 employees, you know what I mean? It's it's very ambitious, but you can also fall. Oh, so I had to do it in tranches. We did it in tranches. We just started with upstairs. yeah. And it, it took us two years to build the downstairs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I'm glad we did it in these slices. And saying that, because I'm sitting here at Red Rooster in Overtown now, and I thought we can open... And both at the same time. The mm-hmm. pandemic step, didn't step in, but the pandemic happened. And maybe we needed to be one room and handle that. And six months or a year later, open upstairs. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. so things happen for very different reasons. Yeah. And as people, very often as men, you're so ambitious. we want to do everything. we want everything to happen right now. But, you know, I've learned to sit back and say it's going to happen when it's going to happen.
0: You know, that makes me think about and I've said this before that, um, you know, the the pandemic and the loss of life and the loss of business, of course, is tragic and, and you know, would have been lovely had that none of that happened. When has the, the entire planet ever had the same thing impacted at the very same time and caused us all to press one big giant pause button and as a result, Refocus, rethink things, pivot. That word became a, a you know a very popular word this year. But do you know what I mean, Marcus? It's been like this this spiritual stop, full stop, and reevaluation, and and issues that needed to be flushed out the 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 healthcare issues, the frontline worker issues. I mean, all of these were conversations that were in the pipeline, but got fully accelerated this this past year.
1: Yeah, no, it, it's a very important point. And, and I preference that with saying all the lost uh, lives that we lost is horrible, absolutely horrible. And uh, I wish we could have responded differently, but we are where we are. And yes, this is the biggest reset that probably will happen ever. So we, if pivot was the your, your word of 2020, uh, I hope empathy can be the word of 2021. You know, and you know in, in in Africa, in South Africa, there's a word Ubuntu which you work towards for and having good Ubuntu is very, very important because it means that you can leave your door open and the neighbors nobody nobody the neighbors got you. If you don't have uh, childcare, you can drop them off at the neighbors and the neighbors got you. These are the type of things that has actually slowly started to happen neighborhood by neighborhood in America. We have to be social distance, but we figure out as communities somehow to work together. I'll tell you, on my blog, we shut it down for cars this summer, and two neighbors just took it over and built this childcare pod and went and knocked on everyone's door. Okay, this is what we're going to do. The market is, you know, food. Okay, on Sundays, provide meals for the kids and cook with the kids. You're an artist. You're going to paint with a kid. You're a gym teacher. You're going to do this. I'm a yoga teacher. And so little by little, in the safest way, our neighborhood came alive in a way, Brad, mm-hmm. never been before. And I'm just saying that's an example of how neighbors come together and say, hey, we can't do this. And we can't just sit here and be afraid of each other. We're going to do this safe. We're going to have enough distance. We're going to do it masked up. But we're not going to stop living. There's these stories that is happening. They're not always written in the new media, but they're happening. I'm sure they're happening in your neighborhood and they're happening in my neighborhood. Those are some of the stories that I wish could come out of this too. That don't go away the day when we're back to the new normal.
0: I feel you, man. I, yeah, I feel, you. I get that as you're describing it. I'm, I'm just envisioning a village and, you know, people yes. just reaching out. And that's, that's certainly a spirit that we need a little bit more of, a lot more of now. You know, Marcus, you talk about, um, some of the influences and people that, um, you know, you made contact with the Thelma Goldens and, and, um, various people uptown. I know I've heard you mention Tracy Kimball and Ray McGuire, our, our friend who's running for, for mayor in New York. I mean, these were some, you know some some pretty influential folks that uh, you were able to find, and I think the one thing that most people say consistently about you that we all admire is is how much of a student you you know you are, how 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 good a student you are. A friend of mine has a saying, you know, and then I think about you because you didn't grow up here. But a friend of mine says, um, "I might have been born yesterday, but I stayed up all night." <laughs> and <laughs> That's every a good month, one. yeah, and it. That reminds me of you, man. You, you have this curiosity and, um, a a sharp mind because being curious is great, but you can walk into a lot of buildings just being curious and not then bump your head. But you have a sharp mind, Marcus, and you know how to focus what you learn and, and reinterpret that into words, guidance and experience. What, what is that gift? Where, how do you sharpen that tool?
1: Well, I've had a lot of good mentors and I've experienced many different things. You know, Brad, I was born in, in a hut and I go back to that hut, not this year, but almost every year after that, I go back to that hut. And when you stand staring at a hut and you come from that and you have your son in your hand, when we, he, he's too young to understand why we're here, but it gave me enormous amount of strength, strength. But then also I think about the mentors that saw something in me and believed in me way more before I believed in myself. And So it's a a lot of that and my parents and my grandparents, but I would also say that I have incredible uncles and aunties, like Ray McGuire is a mentor of mine, he's a friend of mine, and he will hopefully be the mayor of New York City. You know, people like Dick Parsons early, you know, put me aside and say, hey, this is what you should do. You know, when Dick put together the Empowerment Zone in the 90s, Harlem is still thriving after what Dick Parsons put together in the 90s, right? Think about that. 25 years later, it's happening, right? So I've been fortunate enough to cook for these incredible people, but they've also been, say, been in my corner and be able to have people like that and amazing people like Elizabeth Alexander and so on, call on because I didn't know how to do a book, but I've always had somebody that I could ask, okay, how do you put together a book? Or I didn't necessarily know how to buy my first apartment. Well, I had an aunt or an uncle that I could ask. Right. And so I feel really privileged to being old enough to grown up in a culture where you acknowledge that, but also young enough to have the energy to be able to execute. And I would also say, you know, also, Brad, black culture has given the world so much, so much. There's so much there culturally, right? We talk about Malcolm, we talked about Martin, we talk about the music. So as a, as a student being outside America, I felt that was right there when Motown 25 happened. I try to do moonwalk just like any other kid, right? Right. And, you know, when MTV started to show more of us, I try to do those moves and be part of that. So so my point is black culture gets exported to the world and appreciated to the world Mm -hmm. in a much higher level than it ever gets appreciated here. Here. And I was that one kid that Mm -hmm. they were talking to. So when you've been the benefactor and the receiver of that, you got to give
0: back. Yeah. Marcus we' you were winding down. I have a couple of more subjects that i that I want to touch on, and thank you for that um elaborate elaboration on on that question. One of the things that that the pandemic um shook up a bit is the world of publishing, and I know that Don Davis took over as editor at Bon Appetit um you're going to be doing some guest editing work there, which is fantastic. Um, I had been in discussions with the James Beard Foundation, their diversity officer for years. I think I mentioned that to you a couple of years ago about the possibility of joining with them. And that never happened. The only thing that came out of that was a, a little article I wrote about Alberta. But, you know, you make some really good points about the um, the messaging and how important the narrative is. And, of course, who gets to tell that narrative is important. So how do you see these changes, Dawn being at Bon Appetit, you having an opportunity there, and wherever else changes might come from, how do you see that affecting the narrative?
1: I think it's extremely important what's happening right now, right? And uh, Dawn is an amazing publisher, and she knows how to navigate, know how to tell diverse stories. She's also partnered with Sonia Chopra, which is also, uh, she's you know a woman of color, and the person that is the head of all digital content and the videos is a woman. Agnes, also a woman of color, right? These were all positions that were hold, but held by white men before. The fact that these are three women of color telling these stories will shape the storytelling, right? And then you have incredible people like Tony Tipton Martin, being both in publishing and doing her own books, for example. And then, you know, in other posts, you have incredible people like Jamila Robinson, you know, writing for Philadelphia Inquirer, for example. So And, you know, my co-author, Osae, so you have these, in this generation, incredible black writers that are telling their truths, are telling their stories on super- important platform then what's happening on social media you have someone uh, and and beyond right there are new stories constantly and you also have something that's happening in in self-publishing if you think about what clancy miller is doing for for the culture for example so i don't think there's ever been a larger time and more more of us daring and telling the stories in food and that will be game-changing because People come to appreciate how do we appreciate Italy so much? Because of tourism, because we've heard the stories. How do we appreciate France so much? Because of what's been told in books and magazines forever. Well, I hope that that can now also some of that can be shared with, let's tell the stories about Detroit. Let's aspire to go to Charleston. Let's aspire to go to Overtown. So that can't be done unless there are receivers on the other end, in media that values our stuff. And that's why I think it's so important to have Don Davis at Bon Appetit. And that's why it's so important to have Don Martin and so on. The list goes on and on. I feel very positive about the future, uh, both from the sort of the traditional media content providers, also what's happening underbelly in the social media and on TikTok, because our culture always comes from sort of, a basement culture that then eventually becomes pop culture. Right. It's done so in music, done mm-hmm. so in film, and then eventually we become the mainstream.
0: Mm-hmm. Very true. Um, and there's also this this interesting trend. I know I, I had been seeing it. And uh, I spoke with Mashama Bailey recently, but also read Charles Blow's column where he's leaving Brooklyn, the New York Times columnist to move to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm talking about reverse reverse migration and the impact that now, you know, the the food that made its way from the South North and the people who open businesses now. A lot are heading back down south and it's going to be interesting to just see how that plays out in terms of what happens with the food and the culture and where that, where, where is the culture going to, going to mobilize now in what, what cities, what places in the South? How, how do you see that?
1: Well, you brought up Mashama, she's an amazing example that she could have an open restaurant in New York, but she used to go to Savannah and do it and start a conversation there. That was amazing. And with that comes Netflix. And with that comes a center of the universe in a way, right? She launches a book from Gray and so on, right? So I do think uh, the fact that we are not just doing it in the New York and the LA or in Chicago, that we are doing it in other cities as well uh, is super important because, you know, One thing that I wanted to highlight in the rides was that we focused on 45 chefs, but we really told the story of 200 chefs. And people are not just in the big cities. People are everywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's important because as people travel and as people need examples and people need places to work in to get experience in, you don't have to move sometimes. You can stay in your own city or you can move to a neighboring city. And that's why it's so important to see that our culture in terms of food is not in one city many cities. And um, I feel as we can navigate our way through the pandemic, I think this big reset, um, I really believe that the magic can come out of it.
0: I listened to a great conversation you had with Adam Weinberg at the Whitney Museum, I believe last month, and you made some really, really um, inspirational Comments and points about food and, and, you know, the, the metaphor of the table and, you know, that's what I call my podcast. It's a, you know, metaphor for that, that spot where you can have intimate conversation, but the power that food and, and restaurants have to bring people together and potentially provide an atmosphere for some of the conversations that we need to have around race. And Alice Randall, the New York Times bestselling author, speaking about Detroit, wrote wonderfully about Detroit and Black Bottom Saints, a fantastic book that she got nominated for lots of awards for. But she used an expression um, that she says, there, there has to be a reckoning before reconciliation. How do you feel about that, Marcus? I mean, are, are we having a reckoning? Are we re- ready to reconcile? It still feels like there's a lot of stuff that needs to be said that hasn't gotten said.
1: I agree with that. That has to be a reckoning. And I think that there's many incredible storytellers that helps us get there, right? And share that, right? When you think about what well, you think about a book like Cast from Devel wiki or thinking about you hear the podcast 1619 from Nicole Hannah-Jones, you think about how things are linked generationally. So it's happening a little bit in Hollywood. You can tell like on a director level or on an acting level, it's happening slower in food, but it it is happening, happening in media. It's not as fast as as we'd like. Uh, And I see all this. And then on a daily basis, you get reminded about Amon, Rihanna, George, you go back and the list goes on and on, right? Especially now, right? You're gonna hear about it every day. and, And there's not a day during the spring when I don't think about Maud Arbor. You know, like, I, I'm a runner, I go to New City, one of my favorite things to do is to run, to mm-hmm. a free thing, just put on sure. sneakers, shorts and a shirt and just go, right? I would have been running in Air Brianna Trails when mm-hmm. we watched over and over that image of George Floyd being murdered right in front of us, right? We, we've heard those stories before, but we never visualized it in that way, right? So on one hand it is happening, and on the other hand I feel like we got nowhere. The incredible thing what I learned about America, it's it's a country of this incredible journey of push and pull, right. and many things can happen at this. And it is a country where we most of the time land on the right side of right, but it's a hella of journey of get, getting there, and it's ugly and it's sticky and it's a push and pull. But it's maybe our job to just push that needle, push that conversation, move it. Because that's the only way we know how.
0: Well, we're, we're at the end here, Marcus. And, uh, but that's, that's perfect for you know, my, the last thing that I, that I want to ask you about. And, and uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time, but I, I do want to say, you, know, you have the intellect, charisma, talent, and the growing platform to be one of the great cultural ambassadors of all time. I'm curious, that plus deeply caring about the world that Zion is going to walk through, is that what gets you out of bed in the morning?
1: You know, I started my podcast because I wanted Zion to have a receipt. I wanted him to know that his daddy was vulnerable and didn't know what to do, but did something. I started finishing the the product that I do, it's with him in mind, right? You know, there is, for Zion The coolest people in the world are the police officers who work in the park, right across the park where we live. As he's running towards them and as they talking to him, I want to say, and I'm thinking in my own head, remember this face when he's 15. Remember him when he's 17. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: He's not just a cute boy now. Have him in mind.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: He might wear a hoodie. He might need to be corrected because he's he's a kid and it's going to be up to no good sometimes. And I need you to not overreact. I need you to talk to him reprimand him and as a parent as a father i have all those multiple conversations happening at the same time and my way of expressing them my way of dealing with that is through creating content through food and everybody has a different process but that's my process that is my process
0: well that's that's a beautiful imagery man and the idea of of having the officer become familiar with zion's face now at 10. At 15, my son's 32 and I've been having those conversations too. So I I can relate. Jeff, Marcus, Samuelson, thank you so much, man, for your time today and the energy that you continue to put out to the world, man. We need you, brother. I
1: I thank you to you and your entire team for putting this together. It is beautiful. Keep sharing, stay curious and keep creating beautiful content like this. Congratulations, Brad and team. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Marcus. Thank you, well, folks. Welcome to the segment of the show that uh, I call "How We Move" with Ambassador Shabazz, Ambassador. That was a, quite an interesting discussion with uh, with Chef Marcus Samuelson, and uh, I'm I'm curious to to catch some of your reflections.
3: Well, it, it was definitely wonderful and timely, and in listening to it, I just want to thank you again for incorporating me and um in this collaboration because as busy as my life is all good um but this gives me an opportunity to pause and share the reflections while listening to them um, without having to do notes on something else but actually to take this in digest and also really get to appreciate the intimacy that you and your guests in this case marcus samuelson whom many of us in new york watched arrive land on the shores and journey and from a backseat were hoping and rooting for and to see him skyrocket and take charge, not just as a culinary chef for restaurateur, but incorporating life lessons, um, using his labyrinth to bring in or bridge other components and certainly as a dad you have to have a different dimension. It's not just you in the world, but it's making sure that what you set forth is there for the next generation, in this case, his child and others in the communities and neighborhoods. So it was a lot to hear from him, not mm-hmm. just read about, not just a headline, and stewarded by you knowing these this course, this journey, the, the trajectory generationally, the highs and the lows, while the Customers are having a great time. You know what you have to manage in the back, you know, in the front, on the side, mm-hmm. you know, when doors close. And so getting to hear him talk about that simultaneous to a front seat rise, so to speak, right. using the name of his book as well, that there's so much else going on. And when he juxtaposes it to being a tri-national Uh, you know, an African national, a a European national, and now an American national. And coming from that lens, things that maybe on this side, we don't really understand. Something significant that he said, well, how much American black culture is exported? Mm -hmm. It is a kind Mm -hmm. of blueprint for many before they arrive. And do we know how to be the hosts to the newcomer?
0: You know well you know and that that's a a good point that you touch on and i'm and I'm curious to get your perspective on because as someone who has traveled as extensively as you have and when you hear someone like Marcus Samuelson talk about how black culture is viewed when it is acknowledged overseas yet and it's and it's ironic that we're that we're talking about the culinary industry as a, as a central point because as I've alluded to on this program and you and I have had, you know, plenty of conversations around the, some of the difficulty that I've had in hiring folks from our community and enticing them into the culinary world for, for various reasons. Whereas Europeans and, and even, and, and Africans don't necessarily, and, and folks from the islands don't necessarily come here with that same baggage. I'm curious how you see that. Balancing what you hear Marcus say, what you know as a, as a native New Yorker, yet a world traveler, where do you think our, our context is off there or where or is this now just where we are and where we're growing from here and things are improving and the voices amplifying a different narrative?
3: Well, I think one of the things is that despite our classification as being, you know, a world leader as a country, we still are a colony. Right. So that no matter how many cultures are here or how many of us generationally as African-Americans and or other cultures that are here, America almost requires that you let go of yesterday and pick up where you are. What happens when the newcomer lands at JFK or Ellis Island once upon a time? or like my grandmother by way of a a ship that went to Canada and then she stepped over the border into the United States. They come with all of that ready, jam-packed goodness and anticipation and hope and aspiration are blindsided by us not being as ready as we promote, uh, that we market. When I take people abroad, I very often experience Americans who are traveling with me bringing or transporting their colonial component. Now, so the thing is, is really learning who we are. Understanding who we are so that when he references himself as a as an Ethiopian by blood and origin, but influences from Sweden and journeys through France and other things, he's going to arrive to these shores black and brown. But it doesn't mean that his experience is going to automatically start where ours is. And so what is the what is the. Um, extension that we as Africans of the diaspora, which he referenced always, to understand our variety, our uniqueness, our breadth, country by country, region by region, South by, versus North. I mean, I'm a real, I'm a Northerner and I'm living in the South and it's learning and understanding the characteristics of people who identify themselves by the Underground Railroad, where for us in New York, it's referential, right? but it's not um, you know, front porch talk. So it's really listening, right? It's Mm -hmm. really listening and using this table format. Once upon a time, we did that. We stopped. And so pausing to have these conversations is really great. It's like yesterday I had a meeting at 3 p.m. And I thought I said to my 430, I'll be back in an hour and a half. That did not happen. Mm -hmm. What happened? I walk over. It was chilly as heck. I walked to a friend's restaurant. Um, before it opened up for dinner, thinking we can just get that done. And the conversation was so amazing, so wonderful that I was there long enough to stay and have dinner. Mm-hmm. Now, because I was chilly. Now, you know, most people that know me know I don't imbibe. But they offered me a Kentucky coffee and a Kentucky coffee um, similar to ones like Irish coffee. Or, that sounds or what,
0: like it might come with a little Kentucky bourbon.
3: Well, it came with some bourbon, sugar. And a little twist of uh, whipped cream garnished with my favorite cinnamon. So I can only do a little bit. I could do like a cat bowl <laughs> because, you know, I was putting hair on my chest. But he yeah. said, it'll warm you up. <laughs> I said, but can I walk home? You know, that was the question. But so even <laughs> significantly, when I'm there, so this is brother named uh, Eric Batchelor, whose father was one of the renowned jockeys and trainers back in the day and um he's an
0: ex-nba guy right
3: he's an Mm ex-nba yep and um and significantly has been in the restaurant industry for a couple of decades and fine dining is his forte it's wonderful you go in there but at the same what's this place called called. it's called uh, brendan's catch 23 Brendan's and it's Patch named after. 23, Twenty-three named after his son Brent, Brendan. It was it's mm-hmm. in memoriam to his son Brendan. Ah. And yeah, you know he has two children, Brendan and Erica. Um. And it when I say to you, you can feel the heartbeat of a dad's love. So when I know you and your father, I know you and your son listening mm-hmm. to Mr. Samuelson make the same correlation. Um, that the ex- his exquisite taste pre-existed his son's mm. transition. But mm. what you know is that he's present in the dedication of this really hip, cool, swanky place that is fine as the dining is. There are also things on that menu that are familiar All to right. the culture.
0: Right? Well, let's do this. And I don't know which will come first, yes. but I am either coming to Louisville and we're going to go to Mr. Bachelor's restaurant or you are going to meet me in Miami and we are going to have dinner at Red Rooster and then some ice cream and have them sprinkle a little <laughs> bit of cinnamon <laughs> on it afterwards in in Overtown. Are you down so, with that well, plan? So
3: this is not an or. This is an and.
0: Right. Okay. So we'll do both. <laughs> I just said I didn't know which would come first. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: We'll we'll definitely do both. And I would love for people if they're in, in uh in um, Louisville to stop by, you know, bcatch twenty-three dot com. And look at that that menu and also know that a large percentage of what people spend goes to the foundation for right. children aging out of foster care.
0: OK, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Love yeah. that. Well, Ambassador, thank you so much. And the weather warming up. So uh, we're going to be hitting the road here soon and, and coming to folks maybe from some interesting places. So Absolutely. nice to see you. And Thanks uh, you for have having a, a back. lovely day. You too. Thank you. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson, coordinating producer Lauren Turner, theme music Life Goes On by Bryce Vine, executive producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production.